Epizootiology, sometimes called epizoology or veterinary epidemiology, is the term for the study of disease patterns within animal populations. An epizootic is like an epidemic in humans, but for animals. This epizootic might take place in a specific area, relegated to a particular forest or nature preserve or breeding facility, for instance, in which case it would be considered an outbreak. It might also be a widespread event affecting populations of that animal in many different regions, countries, or even hemispheres, in which case it would be considered a panzootic. Importantly, this sort of disease spread, whether we're talking about a regionally specific event or one that's more widespread, is enzootic, meaning limited to a particular creature. So a disease that is only found in kitty's hogged nose bat, also called the bumblebee bat, because it's so small, arguably the smallest of all mammals, and which is found in western Thailand and southeastern Myanmar. A disease that only carries between kitty's hognosed bats would be an epizootic that is a panzootic that is enzootic to this particular bat. Today, we have numerous methods of tracking potential outbreaks before they go full-on panzootic, affecting far more members of a particular species across a far greater area. We also have the means of stopping transmission through treatment and prevention, just as with humans and our diseases. Mathematical models are also utilized to see where an increase in flu-like symptoms are experiencing an uptick within horse populations, for instance, and that can allow practitioners of veterinary medicine to pop in and vaccinate those who are yet unaffected, keeping the virus isolated and unable to spread, allowing it to die off once those currently affected have been treated, if feasible, or allowing them to rest and recuperate until their immune systems handle things, if not. As a species, we've been practicing veterinary medicine, or versions of it, since at least the Neolithic period. There's archaeological evidence that our ancestors were trepanating, that is, were drilling holes in the skulls of cows, all the way back somewhere in the neighborhood of 3400 to 3000 BCE. Trepanation was performed on humans back then, as well, to release evil spirits that were thought to cause illnesses and other problems. The procedure, though causing its own share of harms, also would at times relieve cranial pressure that had built up as a consequence of intracranial diseases and could help with wounds in which blows to the head resulted in skull fractures, leaving bits of bone that could then be removed once a hole was drilled. Regardless of the effectiveness of this procedure, though, this evidence demonstrates that we humans have long been making use of medical tools and techniques to help ailing animals, as well as other humans, suffering from a variety of maladies. Domesticated animals in particular have throughout history been enthusiastically treated as family dogs and horses used as tools of war and beasts of burden, along with cows and goats and other animals that provide milk and meat. There was a legitimate economic cost to losing such animals to a disease that would sweep through and kill them before their time. And the economic devastation that could occur in a village or city or country when such diseases were widespread could be akin to that of war or famine or human pandemic. It could devastate local agricultural production, as was the case in the 1872 North American outbreak of the equine influenza or horse flu. 
At the time, there were 39 million humans living in census-taking portions of North America and about 7.1 million horses. Most of those horses were out of commission, unable to work for a few weeks that year due to this flu, which left humans, who had structured their farms to be dependent on horse labor, having to pull their own wagons, till their own soil, and push the wheelbarrows themselves for a while. Nearly all of the horses in that region fell ill, and while only 1% of those horses died as a result of the flu, the slowdown in food-producing labor had knock-on effects that negatively impacted production for the whole season and led to a complete suspension of travel in the state of New York, as they didn't want to spread the flu further, but also had far fewer travel options on account of their horses being out of commission. We see other methods of treatment utilized to combat the sylvatic plague, a bacterial disease that primarily affects rodents, and that really goes to town on prairie dogs and adjacent species. This disease is enzootic to prairie dogs, and thus arises on a semi-regular basis throughout these communities, much like the flu and common cold in human communities. From time to time, though, the disease goes wild and becomes epizootic, spreading beyond specific predictable regions and killing off huge swaths of these creatures in its wake. Its mortality rate is actually close to 100% for prairie dog colonies when it goes epizootic, and seeing as how most prairie dogs are regional keystone species, meaning they play a vital role in their regions, serving as irreplaceable predators for some species and prey for others, interacting in important ways with the local flora and fauna. When they disappear, which they do when they die off from the sylvatic plague, it sends ripples up and down the food chain, negatively impacting the entire ecosystem. It's not good. As a consequence, we humans have taken to dusting rodent dens, including prairie dog colonies, with pesticides of various kinds, in an attempt to kill the fleas that spread this disease from place to place, to confine the disease and keep it regional and non-epizootic. There's talk that we might someday utilize oral vaccines, which would be less deleterious in some ways, though somewhat difficult to implement, in wild populations of this kind. That said, sometimes desperate situations call for desperate measures, even if the proposed solutions are expensive, uncomfortable, and overall undesirable, as it likely would be within these prairie dog communities. What I want to talk about today is an epizootic disease that is spreading like wildfire today, and the consequences of that spread, why such a spread is occurring now, and how that disease could cause reverberations throughout the world. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. For a long while, there were wild boars in China and in parts of what is today Turkey. And there were other similar even-toed undulates like peccaries roaming around Central and South America and even more distant hoofed animals also walking on two of their five toes, which is what even-toed undulate means, like the hippo and giraffe in parts of Africa, and the various sorts of camel and alpaca and deer running around in various forms on multiple continents. But there were no pigs, because pigs are the consequence of human domestication. The modern pig, in other words, only exists because of us. It grew into its current shape out of the rough mold of the Eurasian wild boar by growing alongside and within post-agrarian human civilization. Some experts consider the pig to be a subspecies of Eurasian boar, while others designate it as a species all unto itself. 
Either way, the term pig applies broadly to a collection of pig-like animals, with the terms swine and hog being used in some cases to distinguish between types, and the term razorback applied to domesticated pigs that have gone feral, either reintroducing vestigial teeth and fur and spines that had evolved away in previous generations, or mating with local wild boar to blend the pig-like and the boar-like attributes into something a little bit different from both. Interestingly, there's a recent, there's recent genetic testing derived data that indicate even our most chilled out seeming domesticated modern pigs almost certainly come from a long line of pigs who over the past 12,000 years or so have been domesticated, have mated with wild boar, have been domesticated again, have mated with wild boar again, back and forth and back and forth, the wild boars evolving over the centuries, while the domesticated pigs evolved in different human-prioritized ways, all of which led to an interesting intertwining of attributes derived from both groups that have amalgamated into the diversity of pigs that we see on farms and wild in nature today. Part of the reason pigs have proven to be such a consistent component of human civilization since the beginning of what we can call civilization is that they are versatile in terms of what they offer human beings. Because of their powerful digestion capabilities, pigs can eat what humans cannot, from waste to things like highly fibrous plants and types of animal tissue that we have trouble chewing and breaking down in our stomachs. And they turn that waste, that non-human food, into food that we can eat. It becomes meat on the pig, and pig meat is something that we can chew and digest. In some parts of the world, in fact, like the Goa region of India, parts of China, parts of Japan, and parts of South Korea, it was once common to set up pig toilets, where you would perch on a toilet seat above a pigsty, and then you would do your business. The pig would consume the feces, and that feces, along with other rubbish and waste scraps that were thrown into the sty, would become pig meat. Pigs were also very useful very early on as components and raw materials in our tools. Their hides could be tanned into leather or made into a rough sort of armor to stretch across our shields. Their bones could be carved into ritualistic artwork or into weapons and hammers. Their bristles, their very rough, stiff bits of hair, could be made into brushes and decorations. Pigs became so integral to European society that by the time the Spanish started colonizing the Americas, they brought pigs with them everywhere to ensure they had a steady supply of food and other resources that could be derived from this single animal. As a consequence of their resilience and voracious omnivorousness, they could survive just about anywhere and they would eat just about anything. These pigs ended up wreaking all kinds of havoc on the local species of plants and animals, pretty much everywhere they were introduced. They would strip plants clean and devour eggs and baby animals and anything else that they could root up with their snouts. And that messed up ecosystems, led to the collapse of crops planted by indigenous groups, and led to the feral pig, the razorback and boar, as a broad group to be categorized as an invasive species, with rewards in place from New Zealand to Brazil for killing them anytime they're found, lest they destroy everything in their path. Beyond that feral facet of the greater global sounder of swine, though, the domesticated variety has also flourished, and also, arguably, to a somewhat destructive level. It's estimated that there are around 1 billion individual domesticated pigs alive on the planet at any given moment, 
which makes them one of the most numerous large mammals in existence. This makes them a very successful species indeed by some estimations, but that success comes at a cost. The vast majority of those pigs are kept as livestock, meaning they are being farmed for their meat, which once carved up and put on the market becomes pork, sausage, ham, bacon, gammon, pork rinds, pig liver, chitterlings, blood pudding, and other assorted blood-based food products, and in some countries, head cheese, sometimes called brawn, which is a preserved jelly made from the head of a pig. Pig skin is used to make various sorts of leather. Their fat can be refined into fatty acids that have a variety of industrial and food use cases, and their bones can be made into gelatin, though that's a less common use case than it used to be before we came up with ways to make synthetic gelatin. Pig pieces also serve as vital ingredients to a few dozen medications and medical procedure-enabling chemicals. They are used to test medications meant for eventual human use because of their relative genetic similarity to humans compared to other animals. Their skin and organs are similar enough to ours that they're often used for testing skin products, ranging from medications to lotions and makeup, and certain types of pig can be harvested for their organs, which can then be implanted in human beings with substantially less chance of rejection than other options. Which is a nice way of saying that we raise some of these pigs to be killed so we can take their organs out and put them in humans who require those organs. It's perhaps easy to see then why the porcine industry is as big as it is. From the very beginning, these animals were useful as hell, and that remains the case today, and is perhaps even more the case today than it was back when we first domesticated them. We just keep figuring out more uses for this animal, and because a pig almost always has to die before we can make full use of them, it makes sense that we would have so many of them. Again, something like a billion pigs on farms and in laboratories on the planet at any given time. Which brings me to the story that I'd like to unspool today. This piece comes from The Guardian, and it's entitled, No Way to Stop It, Millions of Pigs Culled Across Asia as Swine Fever Spreads. With the subtitle, Experts Say Region is Losing the Battle, to stop the biggest animal disease outbreak the planet has ever faced. African swine fever is a virus that should not be confused with classical swine fever, which is also called hog cholera or pig plague, or with swine flu, more formally called swine influenza, which has been in the news a whole lot lately as a result of outbreaks in 2015, 2016, and 2017, but which is distinct from African swine fever in its composition. African swine fever is a double-stranded DNA virus rather than the spherical-shaped virus of the swine flu. And the swine flu is transmissible to humans. It has become zoonotic, if you want to use the more formal term for such transmission. Whereas the topic of today's episode, African swine fever, has not made the jump to humans. And we do not have any compelling reason to believe that it will. So unlike swine flu and avian flu and numerous other zoonotic diseases over the past few decades that have used animals as breeding grounds and then jumped from them to us due to our close proximity to each other, this current story is about a pig-specific disease that is worrying because of what it is doing to pigs, not because it is currently, at least, threatening to human beings in any direct way. The fact that we can't currently catch this disease doesn't mean that it couldn't happen, of course, but the more pressing concern here is what the disease represents in its current hosts, and what such a disease shows us about how the pig product industry operates, especially in China, where this disease is currently causing the most damage. 
Let's get into some numbers here so we have a clearer idea of what we're talking about in terms of the consequences of this disease spreading as it has. As of the day I'm recording this, nearly a million and a half pigs have been killed, culled either because they were already infected or because they were exposed to other infected pigs, and therefore had a decent chance of spreading the disease to healthy pigs if they remained alive. There are estimates being tossed around at the moment that indicate maybe as many as 200 million pigs will need to be slaughtered in the coming year for the same reasons. And the logic behind these cullings, this mass slaughter of these pigs, is that the virus can survive for several weeks on clothing, on vehicles, in soil, on skin, which allows it to travel easily and rapidly and to spread without anyone realizing that it has spread. So if you have one contaminated pig in a group of 200, it will often make more sense logistically to prevent the spread of this disease to kill all 200, even if the remaining 199 do not yet show any symptoms. That they've been exposed to that other pig, to the soil in that pen, to the pen itself, to the workers at that pen, means that there's a decent chance that some or all of them will come down with the disease in the next few weeks. And keeping them alive would be a gamble that makes further spread all the more likely. This disease has recently spread from China to Mongolia, Russia, Cambodia, and Vietnam. Back in January, when the current outbreak began to be noticed as something beyond the norm, Denmark built a 43-mile-long, that's a 70-kilometer-long, fence along its border after two dead wild boars were found to have died of African swine fever in Belgium a few weeks prior. Denmark exports about $1.7 billion worth of pig products each year and understandably wants to protect that industry from this kind of devastating disease. But the scale of what's happening in China easily dwarfs that of Denmark's industry. It's estimated that half of the total population of pigs in the world live on Chinese farms and within meat industry buildings. That's about 440 million pigs, give or take. And as I mentioned, it's currently estimated that nearly half of that total number could be killed in an attempt to stifle the spread of this disease. And it's worth noting that China's pork industry, that's just pork, not all of the other pig products that come from the same animal, is worth about $130 billion each year. So that's something like 76 times the size of Denmark's entire pig product market, just in Chinese pork. In Vietnam, 48 of the country's 63 provinces have confirmed the virus in local pig populations. And they have, as of the day I'm recording this, though this number, like all of these numbers, are likely to grow by the time this episode goes live, they have killed about 2 million pigs thus far, about 6% of the country's total pig population. Cambodia has killed about 2,400 pigs in the past two months, and Thailand has killed an unreported number of pigs, though their total population is about 2 million, so that smaller population could keep the virus from spreading as quickly as elsewhere, depending on how those pigs are housed and fed and such. In Vietnam, pork makes up 75% of the country's meat consumption, and China consumes about half of the pork and other pig products that the world produces. Though, more broadly, pork is also the most widely eaten animal product in the world. About 38% of all meat production worldwide is pig-derived. So this is a massive, popular, sprawling market that is largest in China because China is 
huge and has a quickly expanding middle class that can newly afford meat in a culture in which meat was considered to be a sometimes not everyday luxury good for a large portion of the last century. But there are also cultural reasons why many Asian cultures prefer pork over beef, whereas the opposite is often true for many Western cultures. Part of it is practicality and part of it is aesthetic, flavor-related, or tied to tradition and ritual. So all that said, we might sum up the current pig industry-related circumstances by saying that we are at a high point in pork production worldwide. Most of that pork is coming out of and being fed back into Chinese markets, and that pig products and pork more specifically is a massive globalized industry that interconnects with many other industries, from leather goods to restaurants and grocery stores, from feedstock producers to shipping and logistics industries. If you wanted to find a particular food resource to demonstrate how the contemporary globalized food marketplace works, the humble pig would be an excellent archetypical example to use because of its ubiquity, popularity, and expansiveness. But now this disease, which was originally noticed and cataloged in Kenya back in the 1950s, has spread beyond its normal boundaries, taken root in a highly industrialized pig business ecosystem, and pulled out all the stops. It is spreading quickly, It kills pretty much every pig it infects, and there is no vaccine or cure. The only currently known solution, or semi-solution, since it doesn't always work, is to kill all pigs that have been exposed or that may have been exposed to create a wall between the infected and the uninfected. And because of the nature of this virus, even doing that is wildly imperfect because it's so resilient, so long-lasting, and so seemingly unconcerned with the specific heritage of its host. A pig is a hog is a boar, as far as the African swine fever is concerned. The ramifications of this iteration of this disease and its spread are many and interesting. First, this isn't a problem that is likely to go away, and this is just one instance of something that's likely to be a perennial problem in this and similar industries for a long while. Unless something dramatic changes in the way that we consume food, distribute products, or treat disease. There are numerous other epizootics, outbreaks in a particular region, just waiting to become panzootics, diseases that have spread across an entire region or worldwide throughout the animal world. And if we add into that mix the diseases found in the plants that we eat, wheat rust and brown streak and cassava mosaic and Panama disease, just to name a few, the risks increase further. Those risks increase further still if we consider the interactions between these species that we use as food sources and other interconnected species. A disease or parasite in a non-food-producing tree wouldn't immediately seem like an issue for our global food production systems. But if that tree's roots keep the soil from eroding in an area where we have orchards or other food-producing infrastructure, or if those trees bloom, providing sustenance for pollinating species like bees and bats, and those trees die leaving the pollinators to starve, the soil undefended against erosion. That could have the knock-on effect of decimating our almond supply or avocado industry, even though it doesn't initially seem to be connected. That web of interconnected species and industries expands as we move up the food chain, as each new level adds dozens or hundreds of first-tier connections between these species and other connections introduced due to the nature of the industries built around them. The pork industry isn't just connected to the foods and other resources required to raise pigs. 
It's also connected to the worlds of shipping, of packaging, of other food industries, which provide cast-offs for the pigs to eat, of antibiotics and other medicines to keep the pigs from dying, of more conventional diseases as they grow. And it's connected to international politics, as we've just seen recently in the pork industry, among many others, which has been impacted by the Trump administration's trade-related actions against China. Second, this is a problem that is likely to have many long-lasting repercussions, some of which we're already seeing in the reorganization that's taking place within China's pork industry production infrastructure. At the moment, due in part to tradition and in part to logistics, a huge chunk of China's pig industry is made up of smaller farms and warehouses owned by family businesses. These families have worked in this industry for generations, in many cases, and it's long made sense for them to produce in this way, as it spreads risk around and allows them to continue to produce, even when some regions of the country are experiencing local hardships from weather or disease. This disease, though, because of how it spreads and how long it lives, and because of all the pieces that connect these family farms to each other, has devastated these smaller businesses. Thousands have reportedly already completely collapsed, and that's from the official reports, which are often altered to seem more favorable to the Chinese public. So there's a chance that the damage is even larger than what those numbers and reports imply. Consequently, it looks like China may be investing in a model closer to the one that the United States maintains, where most pigs are grown and killed and processed in giant factory farms, with tens of thousands of pigs, minimum, in relatively small fields and warehouses, with fewer resources required to bring them to butchering weight, and a more assembly line type of approach to the whole endeavor. The reasoning here is that the factory-style farms in China have not been as badly hit by this disease thus far, because they were able to very quickly act to separate afflicted pigs, and they had more controls in place to begin with to keep their pig stock isolated from outside factors. The pigs are not just out and about, wandering around, maybe catching the disease from a stray breeze or a bit of virus left on a fence post somewhere. So that level of control has helped them weather this particular virus storm. Now, there are many downsides to these mass production models, including the moral questions about raising pigs in these conditions in this way, only to process them, to kill them and butcher them, after lives lived in tiny boxes, never allowed to do many of the piggy things that they seem to enjoy when given greater freedoms in smaller family-run farms. Beyond that, though, cramming this many animals into such a small space and then processing them in this manner is what has led to a lot of the food quality issues here in the United States and elsewhere, where this model is practiced. Many typical diseases spread faster amongst the populations of these factories. They tend to require more antibiotics and other drugs to keep such diseases from ruining their stock, which can lead to all kinds of issues for the folks who end up eating the meat from such pigs. And it's thought that such conditions can become breeding grounds for diseases that eventually make the leap to other species. Subtle diseases that are not immediately obvious externally can grow and mutate and evolve very quickly when there are that many hosts in such tiny confines, along with the piles of detritus and muck that aggregates around them, which can help these viruses incubate and survive outside their hosts when necessary. And third, this casts a very harsh light on many of the downsides of the globalized marketplace that we've created, and that many of us benefit from in countless little nearly invisible ways, but which nonetheless has also introduced numerous new, also often invisible, problems that we only really notice when there's a new pandemic on the horizon or some other devastating consequence that comes close enough to the surface for us to recognize. 
there's a good chance that there are numerous diseases of this kind just waiting for the right variable to fall into place before they go on a tear, just as, or perhaps even more, massive than the one the African swine fever is currently engaged in. There's also a good chance that the very methods and systems that allow us to enjoy the wealth that we take for granted today, the benefits of specialization, the benefits of getting fresh fruit year-round, the benefits of being able to get same-day shipping of some obscure piece of electronics that we wouldn't have even known existed a few decades ago. The infrastructure that allows us to live in this way, to enjoy these things, is a big contributor to these downsides, to African swine fever and its spread throughout Asia, to our issues with plastics and microplastics, finding their way into pretty much everything, including the deepest ever explored portions of the ocean, to our issues with rapidly spreading authoritarianism and misinformation, technocratic and investor-class-driven economic abuses, and the pervasiveness of hacks, ransomware, and other internet-enabled victimizations. They're all issues that we would likely still be dealing with in the micro, in isolated circumstances, at smaller scales. This kind of thing emerges no matter the scale and scope that we're talking about. Anytime you get a group of people together and tell them to live their lives the best way they know how, we will see these sorts of issues. But when that scale increases, and when we're all plugged into technologies that connect us with each other, physically and digitally, that amplifies all those little issues, at times ballooning them into something new, something emergent, something far more worrying that could have repercussions that extend beyond the immediate victims and into the structure itself. I worry as much about those consequences as I do about the issues that trigger the consequences because of that potentiality, that the real damage from even very big problems might be found in the counterstrike, in the pushback, in the intended solutions, rather than in the issues themselves. The book that I'd like to recommend today is one that I just finished, and it's the first book in a series, or an intended series, I guess. It's the only book in that series that's out thus far. It's called A Memory Called Empire. It's by the author Arkady Martin. And this is a science fiction book about an ambassador from a space station who is being called to a nearby empire, a glorious, thriving dominating civilization relatively nearby to become the ambassador there under very unusual circumstances. And these circumstances are part of the storyline, so I won't give away too much, but the crux of the conflict here is that on this space station, they are practitioners of a type of neurological enhancement that essentially gives them access to the knowledge of people who came before them in their particular career. So this ambassador has an implant that gives her access to the knowledge of the previous ambassador, but that knowledge is incomplete. It hasn't been updated as recently as much of these neural uploads are. So she's walking into a situation where this previous ambassador has died under mysterious and suspect circumstances, and she does not know what to expect in terms of how to operate within the society above and beyond the stuff that she's learned from studying and being obsessed with the culture of this society. And she doesn't understand fully the collection of unusual events that are happening within this glorious, thriving civilization that are causing it internally to come into conflict with itself as well. 
This book is an excellent start to what looks to be a really fascinating and well-written series. I'm looking forward to the next book that comes out in 2020. But if any of that sounds compelling to you, consider picking up a copy of A Memory Called Empire by Arkady Martine. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can find out more information about the tour that I'm currently on at becomingtour.com. You can find my advice column about life at somethoughtsaboutliving.com. And you can find me on Facebook at Colin Wright and on other social networks like Twitter and Instagram at Colin is my name. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.